Hello, and welcome to Contain This. I'm joined by infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist, Professor Alan Cheng. Professor Cheng is a man of many responsibilities. He is currently the Director of Infection Prevention and Healthcare Epidemiology Unit at Alfred Health, a Professor of Infectious Diseases Epidemiology at Monash University, the Chair of the Advisory Committee on Vaccines to the Therapeutic Goods Administration, and an Infectious Diseases Physician. He is also Vice President of the Australasian Society for Infectious Diseases and was a member of the Advisory Committee on Prescription Medicines and co-chair of the Australian Technical Group on Immunisation, amongst numerous other committees and boards. But many of you will know him from his year-long secondment as Deputy Chief Health Officer of Victoria from July 2020 till June 2021. As Professor Cheng says in today's episode, he has a very specific skill set, an infectious diseases clinician specialising in respiratory infections and flu vaccine effectiveness. He was expertly qualified to contribute to Victoria's public health response to COVID-19. However, as he notes, the transition from researcher and clinician to public health practitioner and expert came with its own set of challenges and lessons that shaped Professor Cheng's view on the ongoing response to the pandemic. It's a fascinating discussion that covers how we could better respond to public health emergencies and how Australia and importantly its neighbours in the Indo-Pacific can continue to get ahead of the rest of the COVID pandemic. Alan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Dave. I want to start by just getting some of your reflections on the role that you have played wearing so many different hats through the Australian pandemic response. I think at one point you have been on the Advisory Committee on Vaccines to the TGA to ATAGI, now a household name, but Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation, as well as the group advising the government on what to um, buy for vaccines very early on, and Deputy Chief Health Officer of Victoria, as well as a day job as a clinician. Just looking back over those last 18 months, I'm interested in your reflections about the different roles and lessons you learned along the way. Yeah, look, it's been um, a fairly wild ride, I have to say. Um, I think um, between, you know, three committees, I think it was ATAGI, HPPC and CDNA, I think it's like a 1,000 meetings in two years or something uh, that I've been to and that there's probably a few more, you know, all the ad hoc ones that you have on top of those. So, um, yes, it's been a fairly busy uh, couple of years. Um, I, think, I think I'd describe myself, I, I was talking to someone else, what's that, what's that movie where the guy says, you know, I'm a person with a very specific set of skills? Um, and I, that's what I would describe myself as, you know, I've so, you know, I, I'm, uh, you know, my research interest has been in, you know, respiratory infections and flu vaccine effectiveness specifically, and then happened to be on some of these committees. And I was on these committees before um, COVID, obviously. And then um, I'm a hospital clinician and we deal with flu outbreaks in the hospital. And I've done some mathematic modelling in the past and I've done you know, tropical medicine and so on. So um, I have, do have very specific set of skills that are quite helpful for, um, for you know, a new respiratory infection. And it's not entirely by accident. So these are things that I thought were important skills to have, but um, um, hopefully they are useful for the country to have it at the time like this. I think we've all benefited from your very specific set of skills <laughs> as you describe it. What about as a clinician moving in between um, clinical work and advisory work to the Deputy Chief Health Officer role? 
uh, if thinking about our public health audience and practitioners, what were some of your standout takeaways about working in the health department? Yeah, look, at it, I mean, it's a they're clearly very different job. So, um, you know, when we you know, clinicians deal with individual people and um, when you, you know, in public health and um, as um, chief health officer, that's dealing with the population and the powers that you have as a chief health officer, at least in Victoria, you know, they're sort of spelled out by legislation and, you know, there's a very specific um, role for the chief health officer citing directions and uh, at that time and so on. Um, so they are very different in some ways. But on another level, they aren't quite as different as you might think. So, you know, in a hospital, you have to explain things um, clearly to um, your patients and, you know, your patients might be very well educated and might be talking to a, you know, a patient who happens to be a doctor um, or health professional or you might be uh, talking to someone that um, you know, may not have English as their first language or have, might have uh, different health beliefs. And so that's not, you know, unlike the public really uh, when you're talking to them. So um, you're trying to explain things concisely and simply is, is an important skill for clinicians and um, obviously is uh, very important in um, communicating with the public. But that said, you know, it's a very different environment, um, particularly when there's a political overlay and um, this is a, you know, COVID is a very political story. Um, the way that journalists approach that and um, is, you know, very different to how you, um, you would uh, go when you were talking to a patient, for example. So, um, yeah, it was uh, pretty confronting for someone that's not really used to um, the spotlight and uh, public speaking is not my uh, <laughs> is not my forte. But um, yeah, I you know hope that uh, you know I sort of brought enough uh, um, sort of technical knowledge to it and explained it as best I could. There was some. Um, I think there were some odd times I remember trying to explain how a PCR worked. I think it was in the context of, you know, why do we get false positive PCRs or something like that? And I got about halfway through and then I realised all the journalists were sort of <laughs> looking at their phones and, <laughs> and they'd all tuned out. So um, I'm not entirely sure if that was the most successful explanation, but uh, hopefully other ones were a bit better than that. <laughs> I think it was terrific to see you in action. And, uh, and it gives one pause for thought about how we think about the public health workforce, which we know is thin and stretched in many countries and in Australia hasn't had necessarily the amount of growth that it needed for the pandemic, you know, pre-pandemic. And thinking a bit more flexibly about drawing in clinicians into public health work um, as a as a workforce, I think your yeah, experience just demonstrates that. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, before the pandemic, I'd actually um, I think I've been sort of selling this idea that we need like a like the equivalent of an army reserve. You know, a, you know, there's a lot of clinicians, and um, particularly infection control nurses are, are very highly skilled, and you know, they know how, you know. You, they understand disease transmission. They, uh, you know, understand lots of, um, uh, you know, concepts about um, uh, you know, infectious diseases that are quite important. And that they're like the perfect um, expert workforce um, to sort of help in um, public health. And if, uh, you know, them and general practice practitioners and, um, um, you know, infectious diseases physicians with an interest in public health just had a little bit of training and a little bit of orientation to how government works or, you know, how things um, happen, and, um, then I reckon they'd make a really good reserve workforce. Yeah, in Victoria particularly, I think um, most of the health department now is infectious diseases physicians. Yeah. <laughs> um, can I switch now to some questions on COVID vaccination? 
As a world and as a country, and certainly for Australia in the region, we've all been working towards the targets of 70% population coverage by country by 2022. And as we have embarked on this global COVID vaccine campaign, we have done so thinking about primary series vaccination. We've turned on boosters in response to or in anticipation of an Omicron wave. And now we're seeing that immunity may not be as long lasting as we, well, we're learning about immunity to COVID as we go. There are different ways COVID as the disease and the epidemiology can play out. And vaccination is one part of the response to that. But I wonder if you can just help us think through the ways in which vaccination programs for COVID might look like in one, two, three years. Um, are they going to be for everyone every year? Uh, I'm just interested in some of your observations about the trajectories we could be on for vaccine, vaccination in the near term. Yeah, look, it is it is difficult to know. Um, and a key unknown is, is sort of what is the driver of um, the new variants and for new variants, firstly, are they, you know, are they more severe and um, how much do they evade the current vaccines? And so a, a big question is about uh, whether we need variant vaccines and whether they work. Um, there are actually some um, early indications, at least for Omicron, that um, a variant vaccine actually may not be much better than just giving the same dose of um, the existing vaccine. It's monkey experiments. It's all pretty early stage at the moment. But... Um, uh, that's a sort of a concept that's familiar to immunologists from uh, flu, that sometimes when you give another vaccine, you're just, um, you know, boosting the existing cells and the existing antibodies rather than creating uh, new types of um, uh, antibodies. So that just goes to say that it is going to be fairly complicated um, going forwards. I think there probably is and needs to be a little bit of thinking about um, what it is that we're trying to do. And really, we're not trying to stop transmission. Um, you know, the, the aim is to stop people getting sick and stopping transmission can be one way of doing that, but vaccinating people themselves obviously is another way of that um, and treatments are another uh, method of that. And now that in a lot of countries, most people have probably been exposed to, um, uh, to COVID or to SARS-2 at, at some level, I perhaps we might need to step back and say, well, actually, who will be trying to give um, protection to now with the tools that we have and, and what are the best ways to do that. I think in general, vaccination is a, uh, it's cheap, it's one off, uh, or, you know, at least um, less frequent than, uh, uh, much less expensive than um, treatment, but, and, and prevention is generally better than cure, but um, where most people have got infection, we just need to think a little bit about, you know, who is it that still needs to be um, vaccinated? I, and in, in terms of, you know, are we going to have an annual vaccination? Are there going to be flu-type vaccines with multivalent um, you know, strains? We don't really know at this stage. And WHO has set up a, um, a, a committee, and I think Rainer McIntyre and Kanta um, uh, Subaru are on, on that uh, committee um, to, to really look at that question about, you know, do we need a flu-type vaccine? And obviously the vaccine manufacturers are, are sort of well down the track in uh, terms of uh, developing those sorts of vaccines. They're, they're, I don't think they're technically difficult 
to make. Um, but, you know, what is the strategy, I think, is important. And then how do we keep an eye on new variants? We're, you know, we're coming off the end of an Omicron um, outbreak, but, um, you know, we're up to that letter in the Greek alphabet. So, that, um, you know, there are going to be more and um, anything that is going to spread must have an edge on whatever we've had. So that probably does mean it's going to be um, uh, going to evade the immune system uh, responses to some extent. So then in very practical terms, if, if what we're seeing in the, in the graphs of waning immunity, if you have been boosted in, what are we now, March 2022, and your antibody levels, dec- measurable levels decline, as we have seen the studies to date, by the end of this year, what does that mean for population protection in terms of should there be another wave? Are we talking about vaccines, not only thinking about protecting the most vulnerable from disease, as you have said, but using them on and off for outbreak response? Yeah, so so they're basically sort of three main drivers of what might come next. So that's basically a new variant coming along, and so that can happen at any time, can happen in the summer, um, can happen whenever. Then there's um, there's waning immunity. So as the protection from either your last infection or your last booster wears off, then um, you become relatively more susceptible, although you're more susceptible to infection, but you're still reasonably protected against severe disease. So that's um, something to keep in mind. And then whether particularly in temperate um, areas, whether they're seasonal patterns. And so, you know, um, flu is seasonal in the tropics, but in a sort of different way. But there may be some seasonal drivers. And we actually don't really know that at the moment, despite um, having a couple of years of this. There's just not enough sort of data sets to know um, to what degree um, seasonal factors are important. So if we can start to predict, you know, for, for example, you know, if it's flu, that, that's probably the archetypical we know that every year there's going to be a flu season of some point, except for maybe the last couple of years. But uh, um, in general, there's a winter outbreak in a temperate region. In tropics, it's you know biseasonal, and then that's when we would deploy the vaccine to try and predict what is the next strain that's coming along, and then what is the um, when is the time that that's going to come, and then how long does it have to protect you for? So we give it. You know, we try and give the flu uh, the flu vaccine and sort of, you know, just before winter to try and get the most protection to those that are most at risk over the winter season. Now, with you know, with COVID, we don't know that it's seasonal. We don't know what's coming next. But that's sort of what we need to get to a point to. And then, then we're basically treating it like um, influenza. And I suspect that eventually that's sort of where it's going to go. Could we have better vaccines? Uh, could we have, you know, again, the multivalent vaccines like um, the flu with lots of different strains in them? Um, or could we have a better vaccine that just, you know, um, works against all of them that, uh, that, you know, they're all still to come? We don't you know, obviously a lot of people are working on those, but we don't have those yet. So my last question on vaccines then, if you imagine that you are a health minister of a middle-income country, you have purchased vaccines to cover your whole population or the eligible population for 2021 and 2022, and you're thinking about a health budget and buying vaccines over the next couple of years, would you be putting aside enough money for everyone again just in case or putting aside 
for a, a fraction. It's a very um, literal question, but yeah, you can no, respond yeah. to it how you wish. Yeah. And I understand that, uh, yeah, health ministers do have to make these tough decisions and there are opportunity costs of all of those, I'm sure, as well, especially in, um, in low and middle-income countries. I mean, I think it, we, what, who we will want to vaccinate and possibly more than once, more, you know, give more than one boosters are probably uh, people with risk factors and, and that means older people. And, you know, for better or for worse in... Um, you know, in lower and middle-income countries, that actually is a relatively small part of the population compared to, um, uh, to Australia, for example. So, and then the, the second sort of big group um, would be the healthcare workforce. Um, and then after that, I would start thinking about, you know, critical workforces who, you know, who's going to be important, the military, the police, um, you know, who else, you know, uh, distribution chains and those sorts of things as um, trying to keep people safe. But in general, um, you know, younger people don't get um, severely unwell if they've had, particularly if they've had a, a dose or two of vaccine on board. So um, if I was budgeting for it, I would be thinking about, well, you know, who are the risk groups that I might need to keep giving vaccines to and then for the others, um, you know, wait to see um, what happens uh, uh, in terms of uh, the protection from vaccines against severe disease, which I think is sort of the most important part of it. So can I switch now to treatments? And we know that WHO is considering some of the oral antivirals for recommendations, which they have been doing through their living guidelines. We know some of these oral antivirals have already received authorization from the TGA in Australia and the FDA in the US. Can you talk through how you are thinking as a clinician and as a public health person about the place that treatments have in a, COVID, a package of COVID response commodities? Yeah, so uh, as I think we mentioned at the beginning of this, you know, treatments are one tool that we have to reduce um, severe disease and, you know, vaccines are one of those, the public health measures and preventing transmission in general is another way of doing that, but treatments are, you know, another way of uh, doing that. But treatments in general are never quite as good as they look on the box because um, you have to get it to them um, and usually with in a you know so for these antivirals within five days um, to uh, to be effective and not everyone turns up on the, you know on the fifth day um, of their illness so um, as a from a public health point of view they never quite work as well as um, as you might hope but that said as a clinician you know it is great to have something that you can offer um, a patient to make them um, better um, uh, and uh, you, you, otherwise you know what you're left with as clinicians is, um, you know, just trying to support them through the illness while their bodies are doing all, all the work. And um, it's great to be able to offer something, an antibiotic, an antiviral um, to, to help treat the infection. I think it's sort of, it, it is difficult for antivirals because there are a choice and it's great to have a choice. And that's obviously, that's a, obviously a very first world problem to have. Um, but you know, there's still a question, well, which one should we use? There's some, some of the intravenous, some are intravenous over a couple of days. Um, some of them have um, a lot of side of, or sort of drug interactions um, and some of them um, can't be used in certain groups. So molnupiravir can't be used in um, pregnant women, for example, because um, it uh, may be uh, teratogenic. So uh, there are lots of these, you know, sometimes it's 
decision is made for you. But um, we still don't know which one is best. And, um, and then on top of that is layered this, you know, there isn't um, an unlimited supply of these and we do have quite a lot of cases of COVID. So who do we give it to? And, uh, you know, some of those decisions. So that sort of goes to this problem that, um, you know, we have a supply coming in. We know that it is a safe and effective treatment for, you know, uh, uh, for a group of people that are defined by criteria. And then at the other end of um, the equation, there's um, clinicians who just want to give it to um, everyone. But then how do we use that supply responsibly? Um, how does that program work? We have that system where, you know, TGA will say, um, you know, this is a safe and effective vaccine. We have this tool in the toolbox. And then ATAGI and um, the uh, Vaccine Task Force in Australia will go and say, well, how do we want to use this tool? Who do we give it first to? Who do we, you know, how do we use it as boosters? How many boosters do we give? All these questions we can answer. And then the clinicians will have those discussions with individual people to say, you know, we, ATAGI is recommending this. Um, do you want it or not? And, and answering those questions at the end. We're, at the moment for the treatments, we're missing that middle bit. We have the, um, you know, the regulation bit to say that this is a safe and effective treatment. We have the clinician saying, you know, being able to talk to, um, uh, to um, individual people. We have the task force um, saying these are the criteria, criteria um, by which it works. And that challenge is just amplified in low-income settings and, and middle-income countries where you can see the interest and the importance of equity of access Mm. to treatments, um, especially if, um, and correct me if I've interpreted this wrong, uh, one of the oral antivirals is said to reduce your risk of hospitalisation if given properly at the right time, et cetera, by 90% compared to the standard care or compared to no care, um, which at the point of delivery in an unvaccinated person is a um, a a big big risk reduction mm. but how you access and make those decisions and then deploy the medication safely in a system so that they work that missing that middle bit is missing in so many places yeah so that so that's a really important um point because uh the trials excluded people that were vaccinated basically so um we don't know if it works in vaccinated people we would assume that if you get infected having been vaccinated, your risk of becoming hospitalised is less, and but it would be reduced further because this is a different, you know, mechanism mechanism of action to um, uh, to antibody therapies, for example. But is that actually true? We don't know that for sure, really. Um, and so, again, you know, if I was um, in a country where there was um, much more limited access to these treatments. Um, would really be trying hard to work out, you know, who are the people that are coming into hospital and then what are the opportunities are there to reduce that. So if the people coming into hospital are, you know, older people and people with diabetes and so on, then they're the, probably the people that you want to be giving um, antivirals to um, and then trying to make that the, the cleanest, the, you know, the, the, the smallest group that you can so that, um, you know, the number needed to treat is, is the sort of most optimal um, to, to make use of those resources. But it, it is difficult and um, there's not a lot of evidence to go on at the moment. Can I switch tack and ask you about Australian experts and relationships and partnerships in the region? So I know that we have talked during the pandemic in different regional forums 
but I'm interested in where you see the opportunities are for Australian health security experts or health experts and institutions to build stronger relationships in the Indo-Pacific. Yeah, look, there's just so many different levels where um, these sort of exchanges happen that, um, you know, for example, at the TGA, I'm aware that they've got a whole work package supporting, um, you know, the regional regulators and um, uh, I think, you know, you've organised uh, things with um, uh, the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance supporting, you know, regional NITAGs, that, um, the National uh, Immunisation um technical advisory groups but then you know at my level at clinician level there's so many other you know you know um i don't want to say low level but um sort of you know clinician to clinician sort of interactions i know that um you know fiona russell at uh, mcri has worked a long time in in fiji and um, still um has a lot of discussions with them josh francis in in the northern territory and uh has a long history with uh, timor list and um has been working there as well and um uh, i think uh Mary shield and uh, chris Hare, um you know they have just informal discussion groups with um uh, many pacific island clinicians just to say well what are the problems you're dealing with you know how would we approach this and how can we help you um in the pacific so there's lots of different um you know levels at which uh, people can help and obviously you know australia has a lot of links to particularly the pacific and but also um uh, southeast asia uh and it goes uh, both ways as well um so um you may know that um, we're dealing with uh, japanese encephalitis for the first time on the australian mainland and so i've reached out to um my colleagues in Thailand to say, you know, how, how does your Japanese encephalitis um, program um, work and what have you found to be effective? And that's been um, helpful having um, help from people that have experience with other things. So sharing that expertise around um, in the region is, uh, is really good. You know, I've never had an Australian public health person, clinician person, expert say no to an opportunity to engage with counterparts in the region. And it's just such I mean, you've given great examples there, but it's such an important part of how we work in health and health security and partnerships, but it does rely on the willingness of Australians to engage and, and, and that I think is a huge asset. Alan, I always learn more than one thing when I talk to you. Thank you so much for making the time to join us on uh, Contain This podcast. I'm sure we'll come back but really thank you for talking with me today. Thanks so much, Steph. You've been listening to Professor Alan Cheng, Director of the Infection Prevention and Healthcare Epidemiology Unit at Alfred Health and Professor of Infectious Diseases Epidemiology at Monash University. I'm Stephanie Williams, Australia's Ambassador for Regional Health Security, and I spoke to Alan earlier this year for this Contain This episode. Since we spoke... Australia has moved past the first Omicron variant to what we are now calling the BA2 Omicron variant of COVID-19. As Professor Cheng predicted, so far this variant appears to be more infectious but less severe than the first Omicron variant, prompting ATAGI to recommend that a fourth booster shot only be given to Australians aged 65 and over and other vulnerable individuals. We hope you join the conversation on our social media pages and in two weeks, tune in again for the next episode of Contain This.